Right now, I'd like to invite you to bow your heads with me as we go into the message for the morning. As I mentioned to you a moment ago, it is entitled, One Thing. Let us pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, thank you that as we open your word, we pray for you to open our hearts. Father, we come to church on Sabbath morning, and each of us is so individual. And yet your grand purpose is that we can become just like you. And Father, the question surely does rise to the top. How can we who are so individual, so different, with our challenges and our blessings, our skills and our regrets, looking back, looking forward, how can we possibly ever be like you? And so today, Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would come and remove the obstructions that we may hear what your Holy Spirit is teaching us today. And may Jesus be clearly seen we ask in your holy name. Amen. The story was featured in the Washington Post, May 27, 1979. If you were not around, just hear me out. If you were, hear me out. A DC-10 style of airplane was taking off from Chicago or here airport. It was American Airlines Flight 191 bound for Los Angeles with 271 passengers on board. Shortly after takeoff, it plunged into a field about a half a mile from the runway. According to the flight recorder, the plane had reached the point of no return. That means that when it is taking off, there is an audible acknowledgement by the plane itself that the pilot has now reached V1 speed. That is the speed that the plane is moving so quickly that he could not even possibly stop it. Even if he put on his brakes, the plane would not stop. There's not enough runway to slow the plane down. Right after V1, the next audible announcement that is broadcast from the instrumentation is VR, meaning the pilot now has to follow through with what they call velocity rotation, meaning it's time to pull the yoke so that the nose of the plane would lift off the ground, and they would begin their ascent. According to the voice recorder content, one of the pilots said something pretty harsh, indicating that he noticed when they hit VR, velocity rotation, that there was a disaster in the making. It was on the voice recorder. I won't repeat what he said. But after the investigation, they discovered that 38 seconds before the plane crashed, the left engine fell off the plane. 
rendering it uncontrollable. At the same time, the air traffic controller noticed a disaster in the making, and his words were, look at that, look at that. He blew the engine. About a half a mile from Chicago O'Hare Airport, the plane plunged into a field, killing 271 passengers and two people on the ground. According to the news reports, the fire was so intense that rescuers had to wait for hours before they can even try to begin any kind of rescue effort. And obviously there was no one to rescue because people had been burned beyond recognition. When further investigations continued, the National Transportation Safety Board investigation concluded that just a few days earlier that very same plane had taken off and had declared engine trouble and returned back to the airport, but then was cleared again to take off. They found in the hangar where the plane had been examined after returning a few days earlier, they found one bolt on the ground. One bolt. One bolt. And that bolt was called the nacella mounting bolt. It was also known as the positioning bolt. Without that bolt in place, the engine doesn't remain at the angle that's supposed to be at, increasing the torque so heavily that the more vibration the plane experiences, the more rev revolutions the engine goes through, the more strain it puts on the engine. And that engine almost folded over the wing before it hit the ground. When I read the story, I thought to myself, how amazing it is that one thing can make such a big difference. One thing. And then the Lord began to open up my mind when I began to look at this one thing scenario in a broader sense. Many miss the life that God has for them by just one thing. One thing. They refuse to give up. One thing. They determine not to change. One thing they passionately hold on as though this one thing depends on their happiness and their eternal salvation doesn't really matter. One thing. Some people build their own roadblocks by refusing to let go of one thing. Others missed the beauty and the blessing of the Christian journey by ignoring all that God has in store for them and spend their days and nights consumed by just one thing. And when I saw that picture, I could not unsee it. You know, when you see certain pictures, you just can't unsee it. And the Lord led me now to investigate his word to see if in the Bible that there are any stories that can connect to this tragedy that took the lives of 273 passengers on that Los Angeles-bound plane by simply one thing. And then I found that the Apostle John records one of the most detailed miracles performed by Jesus. It was also one of the most disputed miracles performed by Christ, and it all came down together to one 
thing. After the great debate of how Jesus performed the miracle, it just came down to one thing. We're going to dive into that story this morning. And we're going to see if in our lives, any of us are in the same place, either spiritually, socially, mentally, religiously, if any of us can possibly experience an upcoming tragedy just because of the one thing that seems to be the passion of our lives. If you have your Bibles, go with me now to the book of John. John chapter 9. And when we go through the story, we're going to find a number of things. Let me set the scenario for you. There are three main characters. How many characters did I say? Three. three main characters. We have the blind man. We have the Pharisees. And then we have Jesus. The blind man, the Pharisees, and then we have Jesus. But if you look at the total cast, you have the blind man, the parents, the neighbors, the Pharisees, and then Jesus. Just in case you miss it, the blind man, his parents, the neighbors, the Pharisees, and Jesus. And then the Lord, in the midst of this diverse contingency of different mindsets, begins to unfold before the witnessing eyes of every one of them, the most profound yet most debated miracle in his ministry. When you begin to further investigate the story, it comes down to this simple thing. And the main theme is believing that Jesus can do anything for anyone. Let me say that one more time. Jesus can do anything for anyone if they would simply let go of, come on, say it, one thing. At the end of the sermon, I'm going to ask this question again. Who's blind? Who's blind? This story has three very important parameters under which the story unfolds. It has birth issues. Say that with me. What is it? Birth issues. Then life issues. What's the second one? Life issues, then faith issues. Birth issues, life issues, and faith issues. And the Bible begins to introduce the story in the framework of all three of those as we go to verse 1 of John chapter 9. The Bible reads, Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. When I read the Bible, my mind is so calibrated to see things that many of us often miss. The first thing I saw is Jesus never just passes by without causing a stir. Anytime Jesus is on a journey, he has a purpose. There was not a single journey that Jesus participated in in his life 
There was not a single destination. There was not a single town he went through that he didn't go to for a particular reason. So when the Bible says, now as Jesus passed by, he always passes by those that have a need. Can you say amen to that? Whenever Jesus passes by our house, remember what he said to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, come down. Today, I have to come to your house. On the road to Emmaus, Cleopas and the other disciple, Jesus walked by the side of two men who had no idea where their lives were headed. But Jesus wasn't just taking a stroll. He was trying to get the attention of these two men whose lives were wrapped in sadness and discouragement. Jesus never just passes by. Every journey that he takes is a missionary journey. But when you go further in the story, I also discovered something because the Bible says the man was born blind. And I want you to grab these little nuggets today because this is one of those sermons that are kind of like, if I could use the phrase here loosely, when you eat an entire box of crackers, what do you have at the bottom? Crumbs. But if you reverse it, those crumbs are already there. You just don't notice it. When you think that there's nothing left, there's some crumbs that demand your attention. So when you read a Bible story and you think there's nothing else to be investigated, I want you to know there's some crumbs at the bottom of every sermon that Jesus wants us to pay attention to. So I'm going to talk about the crumbs before we get to the entire box of crackers. Another crumb is... This story is not about how well we can see. Because blind people can't find Jesus, but praise the Lord, Jesus can find blind people. So it's not about how well we can see. And if I expand on that, it's not, how, it's not about how well you can see your future. It's not about how well you can see what's going to happen next year. I could even go so far as saying 2020 and all the COVID and all the political ridiculousness did not catch Jesus by surprise. So let's, let's dismiss this idea that we have to have great sight. Because the Bible says this man was blind from birth. So as far as he was concerned, he couldn't see anything. But Jesus can still see everything. He can see the end from the beginning. He is the Alpha and the Omega. The good news today is before our lives began to unfold... There's a text in Jeremiah 29, 11, where the Lord says, since I can see the end from the beginning, I know the plans I have for you. And when God has plans, the only way those plans can be hindered is if you refuse to let go of one thing. Helen Keller said, and if you don't know who Helen Keller is, then you may just have been born. Helen Keller, who was blind, said the only thing worse than being blind is having sight, but having no vision. There's some people that have no optical challenges, but they just can't see because they're not allowing God's word to be the framework to mold the way they see. And I, I can tell you this, my wife and I can tell you this, in our studies, the more you read the Bible, the better your eyes will be calibrated. The more God's word comes in, that's why David the psalmist says, the entrance of God's word brings light. If you can't see, 
my recommendation to you is study God's word and you begin to be able to see Bible texts that seem to be remedial to you will all of a sudden become important to you. Things that did not make sense all of a sudden gains a higher priority. Why? Because you are allowing God's word to become the light in your eyes. Thy word is a what? Lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Praise the Lord that his word always brings us renewed vision and clearer eyesight. We find the story continuing in verse 2. And the Bible says, And his disciples asked him, The reason I did not include them, because they were simply bystanders. They could not affect the story one way or the other. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? You see, the disciples and the thought leaders of that day were affected by a doctrine now described today as the doctrine of transmigration. The doctrine of transmigration. This ideology has affected mostly Eastern religions. It hasn't really affected Christianity. However, there are some of us that say, I know why you are the way you are, because you're your dad. Am I right? We've said that before. You are just like your mother. Or if you go further back in your family line, you'll find somebody just as foolish as you are. We often link people and their behavior to somewhere in the family line. And in some cases, that's true. I remember a young man in our family, uh, my wife and I, one of her nephews came to me and, and her and said, I need to know more about my dad because there are certain behaviors in my life. I don't know why they're there. So please, auntie, tell me more about your brother so I can know where these behaviors have come from. Because there are certain things that some of you do that if you knew the history of your family, You'll say, man, I had a crazy uncle. You wonder why you do what you do. But we don't believe in the doctrine of transmigration. What is the doctrine of transmigration? Let me put it on the screen so you can understand well. The doctrine of transmigration is an Eastern philosophy that teaches the souls of men were sent into other bodies for the punishment of sins, which they had committed in a pre-existing state. The Pharisees, the Greeks, and the Asiatics held to this belief. So right away, the Pharisees are a part of the, of the scenario. And when you go further in the story, you're going to discover this is why they gave that young man such a hard time. They want to figure who's responsible for this behavior. And today, many cultures and religions still hold to that belief. They profess to be able to pinpoint the sin of the past that is connecting the person to the present of their suffering. They're saying, you wouldn't be going through what you're going through today, Bob, if your grandfather's grandfather wasn't just like you are now. And you've heard that phrase, mm-hmm, bad genes. Apple doesn't fall far from the tree. We don't believe in transmigration, but we often connect people's behavior to somebody in their family. In my family, they say, there's nobody your height. 
But I do know who my dad is, just for the record. When you go further into this doctrine of transmigration, here are some of the things that they often connect to it. For example, in the Eastern cultures, they say that if you are a person suffering with headaches, they said that you spoke irreverently against your mother and your father. So God is now punishing you with headaches, the doctrine of transmigration. They say if you're going through madness, you're going through madness because you were disobedient to your mother, your father, or your spiritual guide. If that were true, some of you would have been mad. <laughs> I mean, out of your mind. And then they say epilepsy, which is a terrible, uh, a terrible ailment. They say if you had that ailment, you were punished for poisoning someone at your master's command. That's what they thought. That's what they thought. They said if you had eye pain, and obviously this is a man's problem, because he said you are dealing with eye pain because you coveted another man's wife, while you were in another body. So look out for people who say their eyes are hurting. <laughs> and then they say, if you came back blind, you were punished for having killed your former mother. However, before your new birth, you would have had to suffer many years of torment in hell before coming back for the second round. Thank God there is no such truth behind the doctrine of transmigration. But when you study the story, you'll find the Pharisees were affected by this ideology because the two possibilities they say for his blindness was, one, he is being punished for the sins of his parents, or he is being punished for his own sins. But the problem with the second scenario is this, how could he have sinned before his birth? It's not possible. And when you go further, you find that Jesus did not explain the reason for the man's condition. He, he did not connect that condition to anything the man had done, which takes us down to the birth issues. And this is something I want to spend a little time on today because many of us struggle with birth issues. I had that challenge growing up as a young boy, being abandoned at three months old, not knowing who my dad is, his name not being on my birth certificate, meeting my mother for the first time when I was almost 26 years old, Losing connection to the only woman I knew as a mother when I was 12 years old. She passed away. And then her husband after that gave up on life. So at 13 years old, I was plunged into the washing machine of New York City trying to figure out how am I going to make it. Praise the Lord. God heard that question and sent me a young lady at 16 who's a great contributor to where I am today. Praise God. How are you going to make it? But birth issues do a job on us if we think that how we were born is not as important as that we were born. Let me say that again. How we were born is not as important as that we were born. Ask Moses for references. Moses at his birth was put into the Nile River, but ended up in the palace of the Egyptians. He was he was abandoned by his mom for the purpose of saving his own life. And then the Lord worked out in his life that he saved an entire nation from the bondage of Egypt. But so many of us fail to realize that how we were born is not as important as that we were born. The point is, God can do amazing things with your future if you spend less time 
harping on your past. And I may have told you the story before, but I'm sure somebody here didn't hear it. So let me go ahead and indulge those of you that have heard it a thousand times. I was listening to a conversation with a young lady on a radio program. I think I was in New York City at the time. And um, I forget the lady's name. It was Ann Landers. Ann Landers. And, um, or Dr. Joyce Myers, one of the two, but it was a radio program, so it wasn't Ann Landers. She was a columnist. But I was listening to the conversation on the radio, and a young lady kept saying to, um, to the female talk show hostess, my parents haven't done anything for me. And the, the question was, what have your parents given you? She said, nothing. They said, no, let me ask you again. What did your parents give you? And she said, absolutely nothing. When I ask for money, they don't give it to me. When I ask to buy something, they don't give it to me. They don't give me anything. She says, young lady, shut up. What did your parents give you? Life. She said, do something about it and stop complaining. And I heard that as a teenager, as I was sitting in my green and yellow room. Yeah, my girlfriend thought I was nuts too for those colors. My walls were bright yellow and all the wood was bright green. And there's a reason behind my madness. I wanted my room to be bright every day. And it was. But when I heard that at 13 years old, I made a decision. I said, I'm going to either make it or I'm going to fail. There was nobody to come to school to say, how are your grades? There was nobody to come to my programs at my high school. Good job. There was nobody to come to things that were being held. I went through high school primarily rejoicing in my own moments of success and lamenting in my own moments of failure. There was nobody to give me that encouragement. But I decided I'm going to either make it or I'm going to fail. And I didn't realize what God had done, and I give God all the glory. And let me tell you why I say that. We've got to recognize that when God has a plan for your life, your failure does not hinder God's ability to still carry out his plan for your life. And I think it was about, nine, about 2013 or, or 2017, I think it was, or 2007, Somewhere around that time, my wife and I went to my high school reunion. I think it was a 30-year reunion or something like that. 37-year reunion, something like that. It was a lot of years. <laughs> and I didn't realize how well I had done in high school. And there was a young lady at the, at the uh, big party they held in Brooklyn, New York. And I'm seeing all my classmates, much older now. And I was looking for a classmate that I was good friends with. Uh, uh, I, wasn't, I was the kind of guy that didn't cut class when students said, let's go to Coney Island, that's the amusement park. I said, no, I'm not going, I'm, I'm doing my schoolwork. And I didn't realize how dedicated I was until a couple of the students saw me there at the reunion and said, oh, he was one of those smart kids. He wouldn't cut class, he wouldn't play hooky, and, uh, and the Lord blessed me for that. I was able to work one week and go to school one week. I was a part of a special program because my grades were so well. And I graduated ninth out of a class of over 900 students. But my point is not so much about my successes, but the, but the hearing the words, and let me just make a point. 
You can be the difference between how a person sees his or her future by the way that you communicate with that individual. You could say to a child, you will never amount to nothing. Or you could say to them, you know, your future could be a lot better than your present. And if you want me to help you make that a reality, I am willing to do whatever I can to shape your future. You can be that one thing between a failed present and a successful future. And I want to tell you that I look back on where I was and I realized that my life was in a pickle for a particular purpose. Here's what it says in John chapter 9 and verse 3. Understand, not everything we go through is always because of what we've done. Sometimes God uses our curse to reveal his blessings. Sometimes he uses our failures to introduce his successes. Here's my evidence to that. John 9 and verse 3, Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. Did you grab that? Are you grabbing that? What it's saying is, here, here, let me work it out. Why was I abandoned by my mom and dad? Why was I left at the babysitter of a Seventh-day Adventist? <laughs> I didn't find out until almost 26 years later, my mother said, if I raised you, you would have been a drunk in the Virgin Islands. Or you'd have been strung out on something because I couldn't raise you. So God had to allow my life to begin as an abandonment to put me where he could begin molding me and shaping me so that the works of God could be revealed. So don't give up on where you are. Because what looks like a failure to you is just the first step in God unfolding his blessings. What looks like a curse to you can be the first step in God revealing his successes. Jesus said neither of these individuals. So it's not true that we are born in a predicament that we cannot change. But the problem is we spend so much time, so much what? I can't tell you how many times I talk to people and my forehead hurts when they tell me about all the stuff a month ago and a year ago and five weeks ago. And, and I'm thinking, as one pastor said, I'm afraid to ask my members, how was your week? <laughs> Because some of them spend all the time, well, you know, my car broke down, I got stepped on my toe, my bird ran into my, my, my kid's head, and, you know, we spilled this food on my computer, and it shorted out. It's like, did you make it to church on Sabbath morning? Yeah. But however, if you're still alive, God can still work in changing the way things presently are. Amen to somebody. The Lord made it very clear, this man didn't do anything. So don't get so distracted by what you were that you forget what you can be. Look at the evidence, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22. Here's where we are, but here's where we can be. For as in Adam, what does the Bible say? All die, even so in Christ, what are we told? All shall be made alive. Don't spend so much time in the Adam room of your life that you forget the Jesus room of your life. There's some people that don't believe they're going to live long enough 
to get their lives right for the coming of Jesus. I'm so glad to know that it's not me getting my life ready for the coming of Jesus, but it's Jesus getting me ready for his soon return. It's God working in you. But I go back to my original point. It'll work if you just get rid of one thing. Let's continue. Let's continue. This story has some profound lessons in it. Jesus pointed to the blind man in the first stage of transforming his life. Here it is, John chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. And we read, When he said these things, that is about the man's condition, he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva. And he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And he said to him, what did he say? Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Now let me eliminate what you just thought you saw. Some people probably said, well, if all this man needed was some clay in some spit and the pool of Siloam, he didn't need Jesus, right? His parents could have spit, put the same clay on his eye, and the same pool was still there before Christ and after Christ. But why does the Bible mention those things? Because we sometimes think it's the anointing oil, or it's the person that prayed for me, or it's the person that has a great prayer life. Let me eliminate that fact. If the Lord does something in your life, it's not because somebody's prayer is better than the ability of Christ, but because the Lord humbly hears that prayer and because he has a plan for your life, he works through our frail prayers to make a change in our frail lives. That pool couldn't change his condition. And clay couldn't do it. And spit couldn't do it. But Jesus was able to do it. Why did the Lord include those things? He included that because sometimes he wants to see if we can still see him through all the complications of how our lives are transformed. You know how you tell the story? <laughs> you know how you tell the story. I've heard somebody say, you know, Pastor, my lights were about to turn off and um, a check showed up in the mail and guess who it came from? I got to thank them, they say. And I say, the first person you need to thank is Jesus. Because he impressed that individual. I know I've been on the recipient, the receiving side of that when I was at uh, Atlantic Union College. Uh, when I was pastoring in the Northern California Conference, I was at Atlantic Union College. I was out of town, and people that I never met sent a check to my house. I never met them. And in the check reason, it says, because you preach the gospel. I never met them. A Sunday morning when I was praying for money to buy food for my wife's family that was coming to be with us, while I'm praying, you heard the story, somebody was knocking on the door. And they said, when I had my devotions this morning, they lived more than 40 miles away on the other side of the mountain, in the mountains of Northern California. You had to, you had to drive on treacherous roads at high altitudes with no guardrails, I thank God for people that are willing to be obedient when God guides them. I did thank them, but before I began to pray, God had given that person the directive early in their morning 
So while I'm praying for God to help out, the Lord is saying, I already thought about it before you did. Amen? And the Bible says, before you call, I will answer. And while you're yet speaking, I will hear. So remember, friends, what's happening in our lives is not because we came up with a wonderfully devised plan to make our lives work. It's because God sees the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things that are not even yet done. But let me add a sidebar. Sometimes he has to take us through the difficult places to convince us that we need to get rid of <laughs> say it one thing I'm convinced today that many of our lives would not be as difficult as it is if we would just get rid of that one thing and you know what you know exactly what that is as Pastor C would go mm-hmm <laughs> I miss him sometimes mm-hmm I can see him doing that right now. That one thing. We're not going to be lost because of how many sins we committed, but we're going to be lost because we failed to do one thing, that is repent and turn from our wicked ways. One thing. But many abound in the same condition because they want something to happen before the Lord does something. I want you to notice what happened in these verses we just read. Before Jesus restored his sight, Terry, what did he do? He changed the man's direction. I want you to see the steps in restoration. A change in our direction is the precursor to a change in our condition. Let me say it another way. Another way to define insanity... <laughs> It's going in the same direction, expecting a different destination. <laughs> Where are you going? The Lord's plan is that way, and they persistently go this way. And I, I asked myself the question. I, I, my matter of fact, I asked my sister this question this, this week. Some of you need to be bold like that. If you want to pray for family members, talk to them. My sister left the church at 16 years old. I spoke to her this week. She's going through health issues, you know, heart challenges. She had a kidney. She had to get that reconditioned. So many things she experienced after the World Trade Center event in, in uh, 2001. So many issues. And I said to her, she's now 65. She wouldn't mind me telling you. But as I was sitting in my garage, my wife and I talking to her on the phone, she said, well, I got to go for this test tomorrow and this test the next day. And I got to find out what they, and when the test results come back. So I said to her, did you pass the test or did you fail the test? She said, it's not a test you pass or fail. I said, well, you said you were going to take a stress test. Did you pass or did you fail it? She said that there are no marks. You don't pass or fail a stress test. I said, I said well, what was the outcome? Did you pass? <laughs> well, no, the results indicated I have a blockage. And I'm not taking another test. She was determined, and we just started laughing. And I said to her, sis, think about it. The Lord spared you through 
you have gone through so many funerals of all your friends dying. You could, you could retire from insanity after picking up so many body parts for nine months down at the World Trade Center. She was there every day picking up body parts, hands. And I won't even get gory. I don't want anybody to, to, to kind of start seeing this. She was there. She was breathing in the fumes, the, the, the shard glass that was pulverized to powder. It got in her lungs. She had so many ailments from all these toxins. And I said, and you survived it. Here it is, 20 years later. How many friends have you lost? Man, too many to count. Why are you still alive? God is giving you a chance to be saved. I said, you're 65. Let's say you live to 85, but maybe even more than that. I said, sis, does it make sense? Jesus is offering you eternity. And you are willing to settle for only 85? Come on, somebody. You need to shake some of your kids. Fool! You're only 16. And you're going down the wrong path. And God is trying to give you eternal life. You don't want it. I cannot understand that. How can you choose the fires of hell when God wants to sell you life insurance and fire insurance through Jesus? It doesn't make sense. But the phone means so much. The movies, so much. The emotions, the relationships, whether physical or spiritual or whether carnal or natural, whatever they may be, how can you focus on losing all of that over, come on, help me out, one thing. The Lord made it very, very clear. You cannot have a different outcome if you persist to go in the same direction. We cannot go in the same direction and end up at a different destiny, which takes us now to life issues. First birth issues, now life issues. And here's the point. We read that in verse 6 and 7. Until we have an encounter. What word did I just say? Until we have an encounter with Jesus, the direction of our lives will never change. You can listen to sermon after sermon. If you don't have a personal encounter with Christ, your direction is not going to change. You could be waiting in the, in the waiting room of sadness and disappointment and frustration, but until you have an encounter with Christ, there's going to be no change in your direction and your destiny is forever fixed. The reason why the Lord, the reason why this young man was able to change his direction is because Jesus told him what direction to go. But you know what? This generation is the generation that doesn't want to listen to Jesus. They want to listen to every other voice but Jesus. And you know, every voice, as one person once said, I heard Oprah say there are many ways to Jesus. And I was so glad for that brave audience member, woman, who stood up and said, I know you're Oprah, but you're wrong. Amen. This society is taking Christianity and shoveling it into a big dump truck trying to get rid of it, but I want to let you know there's too much Christianity and not enough shovels. I know you're Oprah, but you're wrong. She said there's only one way to God, and that's through Jesus Christ. 
while the audience is boo-hoo and hawing around them, she was unafraid. When the Lord transformed your life, you don't care what's happening around you. You'll talk about the experience and the encounter you had with Christ, which now goes down to life issues. The Lord was about to do something for this young man, and this is what he wants to do for every one of us. Let's go to Psalm 119, verse 18. Unless we have an encounter with Jesus, there'll never be a change in our direction, and there surely would not be a change in our sight. There'll be no change in our direction and no change in our sight. Here's the evidence. What happened? This man came back seeing. What did David the psalmist pray? The Bible says, so he went and washed and came back seeing. Look at Psalm 119 and verse 18. This is the prayer that David prayed. This should be the prayer of everyone. Let's read it together. Open my eyes. Let's one more time. Open my eyes. Then I may see what? Wondrous things from your law. Now you've read that before, but do you realize that that's the biggest problem in Christianity today? You know why people have a problem with God's law? Because their eyes are closed. They've closed their eyes to the wonderful law of God. David said, wonderful things from your law. They have closed their eyes to God's law, so therefore when they look at it, they see it as a terrible thing. They call it, are you still under that burden? Are you still bound to that law? But David said, if your eyes are open, it changes the way you see God's law. That's why Matthew, the converted tax collector, reiterates Isaiah the prophet, in Matthew chapter 13 and verse 15, he talks about this condition that's behind rejecting the truth of God's word, holding on to tradition, holding on to darkness. Notice what he says in Matthew 13 verse 15. He talks about this rejection, this lack of change, this determination not to turn around. He says, for the hearts of this people have grown what? Dull. Their ears are hard of hearing. I don't want to hear it. And their eyes they have closed, lest they should understand, lest they should, what? See with their eyes, hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts, and what? Turn. And what? Turn. So that I should heal them. So they can do what? Turn. I'm going to do a sermon I'm working on now called The Turn. Some of you know what I'm talking about. But our world is chiseling away. And when we become recalcitrant, you know that word means calcified. That means hardened salt. That means you can't break it. The danger of ignoring what Christ is showing us is we can get so hard that it'll take a ball peen hammer or a chisel or a sledgehammer to try to break through a heart that has grown dull and ears that refuse to hear. We can't see the life that the Lord has for us until our eyes are open. And when the Lord opens our eyes, he does something for us. He provides witnessing opportunities. Now, Bob, this is where the story goes to the next level. Now we bring the neighbors in. We began with birth issues, life issues. Now let's go to the neighbors. The young man's sight is restored. Let's look at John chapter 9, verse 8 to 10. I like this. Therefore the neighbors, 
And those who previously had seen that he was blind. Could I pause for a moment? Why is it that people always remember you for who you were? And not who you became? Have you noticed that? Oh, so you're that, oh, you're, oh, you're Ronnie's kid. No, I'm a grown married man. <laughs> oh, oh, you used to work in your dad's shop. People often look at who we were. And that's what neighbors are good for. Oh, that's so-and-so's daughter. That's so-and-so's son. They link you to who you are associated with. And I can tell you what, it's, when you impress the neighbors, God is working in your life. When I went back to Brooklyn a few years ago, I went back to the house just to look at it where I was raised. But I did something. And I walked down the block slowly. Just, you know, they call it block in the city. You call it the street out here or the highway. We call it the block. You call it the steps. We call it the stoops in Brooklyn. And I walked down and looked at each house and all the memories began to awaken in my growing up years. And I saw one or a couple of the neighbors, and they say, June, June, is that you? Now, don't you call me June, June. I'm Pastor Loma. Okay. <laughs> but the neighbors remember you, right? The neighbors remember what you used to be called when you were little, June, June. I was June, June growing up in the neighborhood. June, June, man, you've grown to be a mighty fine young man. What do you do now? God has really blessed you, hasn't he? And I said, what ever happened to, and I mentioned one of the kids, and, oh, yeah, he died, drug, drug overdose a couple of weeks ago. Really? And I walked past the pool hall where I used to play and gamble. And, uh, and I peeked in because I, I wanted to see if anything changed. What ever happened to Junior? He's the guy that owned the pool. Well, he died. The other guys, everybody looking, they're all broken down. You know, sin will break you down. And uh, one of them noticed me. He said, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. Could, you, could I borrow $5? <laughs> I'm thinking, same game, 40 years later, ain't nothing changed. You know anybody like that? You could run into them. But I look at that neighborhood, and I look at the people that I've known, and I go through the, the resume of growing up, and I say, praise God. One day, he opened my eyes to show me what I could possibly be. Oh, young folk, can I tell you today, you think you have a great life? You don't know diddly until you put your life in God's hands. You don't know what real life is like until you say, God, take me. Jump in his hands. Jump into the hands of the potter and let him mold you. Because the neighbors are not going to see you any different than what you used to be. Your family members, yeah, don't listen to him. He's been talking like that for 30 years. That's how family members are. That's why the Lord moved my wife and I away from Florida. We wondered, why would God take us from Florida all the way to Northern California, almost broke, to get us in the ministry? We look back now and say, thank the Lord, we were not trying to be pastors with our family members in the congregation every Sabbath. Because, you know, the family members have a way of, mm -hmm, see, I told you he can't preach. <laughs> Trying to be a pastor. Am I right? But after God, rough, after God chisels off all the rough edges, polishes you up, gets you a suit, teaches you how to fix your hair, 
Because I look back on my wedding day, man, I wouldn't have married me. I looked horrible. But I look at me now, and, and I say, God has really molded us. Amen, somebody? You look back on who you were. If there are not changes in your life that are significant, you need to jump into the hands of the potter and let him spit on your eyes, send you to your pool. And when you come back, you'll come back with new vision. God is amazing what he can do. But he could only do that if you get rid of one thing. <laughs> yeah, mine was big. God, first thing he took was my record albums. Hundreds of them. I was the disc jockey. I had four 15-inch speakers. If you were the neighbors, you didn't like me. Because I made it. I was scratching the records before. Record scratching was popular. I was rapping before people knew what it was. And my music was loud. And I know I was one of the kids in the neighborhood that the people did not like because I put all four of my speakers outside of my house. And there'd be like a hundred folk on the block dancing in front of my house. And the neighbors couldn't do a thing about it. When I came back to that same neighborhood many years later, the neighbor said, boy, God really has done something in your life, hasn't he? God really has done something in your life. One thing. Well, look at the neighbors. Therefore, the neighbors and those who previously had seen that he was blind, they said, is not this, this is horrible, is not this he who sat and begged? That's how your neighbors are. They don't ever say anything nice. He's a beggar. Some said, this is he. Others said, he is like him. But I like this part. He said, I am he. Therefore, they said to him, how were your eyes opened? When who you used to be clashes with who Jesus made you, that's the time to give a testimony. See, when I left California, you said I wouldn't amount to anything. I want to tell you what God did since I left California. Right, D? You used to see D when she was in California. The Lord is still on the throne. Amen for D. And Bob, let Bob sit down and tell you his story, who Bob used to be. You'll say, praise God for Bob and Larry McLucas. I know a lot of these stories. They sit down and tell you where they were and where they are today. God is an amazing God. The devil says he's nothing but a beggar. And when the opportunity comes that people are not sure because he could see now, he steps forward and says, I am he. Can I tell you about how Jesus did it? Because they ask, how were your eyes open? I love verse 11. Testimony time. How were your eyes open? How were your eyes open? Here it is, verse 11 and 12. He answered and said, a man called Jesus. If you begin your testimony, don't say, I went to this school or that school, or I got this job, or that job, begin every testimony giving the praise to Jesus. A man called Jesus. Oh, I know, believe me, I, people say, well, how long have you been in ministry? Uh, where'd you get your degree? Uh, what school do you went through? Yeah, yeah. Where'd you learn all you did? Uh, at the feet of Jesus. Praise the Lord. He said, a man named Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, 
go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went, obedience. What did he do? The Lord said, go. He went. If you would simply be obedient to God's GPS, you'll see the changes like he experienced in his life. There's so many stories today. Mark Finley can tell you his story. Doug Batcher can tell you his story. John Bradshaw can tell you who he used to be. John Boonster can tell you who he used to be. Listen to these men. Who they are today is because of the touch of Christ. Doug Batcher finding him in a cave without even clothes on. A great controversy in the Bible. Who puts a Bible in the great controversy at 7,000 feet altitude in the Palm Springs Mountains? God does. Look at Doug Batchelor today, Pastor Doug Batchelor. His name is on every continent. God can do that to your life. But you know why? You will never experience it because you refuse to let go of one thing. And as long as that little thing is robbing you of God's plan, he is saying, I got the plan in blueprint. But he is, that's why the Bible says, Demas has forsaken me having loved this present world. And I forgot what disciple, what one of the tribes, they said, um, uh, leave him alone, he's joining to his idols. Demas forsook being a disciple of Christ because he loved this present age. Seventy disciples decided to walk with Christ no more. And Peter, who was a profane man, who couldn't keep his mouth shut, his life was a mess, he was going to deny the Lord, and the Lord called him clean before he denied him, but he wasn't fully clean. Look at Peter and his word today. Because he got that one thing worked out. He had to have a fall before he can get up and stand on the grace of God. Now we go from the neighbors to the Pharisees. This is the hardest group. This is the hardest group. <laughs> he said, a man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. I, so I went and washed. And I what? Received sight. Then they said to him, where is he? And he said, I don't know. You know what they wanted? They wanted proof. He says, I am the proof. He said, where is he? He said, don't look for him. Look at me. Remember I was born blind? Yeah. Can I see now? Yeah. Who did it? He did it. The things that happen in your life, people are looking for. And that's why this world is sick nowadays. People live in this world. They said, okay, so you said God changed your life? Where's God? <laughs> no. I don't know where he is, but he knows where he is. So they're looking for evidence of his presence when the evidence of his presence is my changed life. How ridiculous. They are looking for the evidence of his presence when the evidence of his presence is a changed life. Look at Jason Bradley. The evidence of his presence. When I met Jason, you could not tell me he would be where he is today. The evidence of God's presence is a changed life. All I know was, <coughs> that's the Jason I met. <coughs> Wait up. <coughs> Smoking so much he couldn't hardly play basketball. Now, he'll block your shot without your permission. God can change any life. Look at his mother. Look at Danny. A kid who was so poor he had to 
paint his black sneakers white to play basketball. But God opened his eyes and look at what we're sitting in today. Some of us could never get there because we are holding on to the things that don't matter when God is trying to show us the things that really matter. And if you want to see your life take off, try it. Prove me now herewith. So the Pharisees now come into the picture. Parents couldn't say anything. The young man testified. Nobody believed him. So the Pharisees decide, let's continue this interrogation. Verse 13 to 15. How ridiculous. They want a testimony. But the man's testimony clashed with their theology, so they decided to interrogate. Verse 13 of John chapter 9. They brought him who formerly was blind to the Pharisees. Now it was a Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also asked him again how he had received his sight. He said to them, <laughs> He put clay on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Simple, simple. Don't try to make it complicated. Don't try to make it difficult. He put clay on my eyes, I washed, now I see. But the problem, but the problem with the Pharisees, and I'm going to now, I'm going to look away because some of you are going to get a little uncomfortable. The problem with the Pharisees is they felt that Jesus should have done it, but not on the Sabbath. Because they had a list of things you couldn't do on the Sabbath. And one of them, Dan, was healing. How dare the Lord violate our Sabbath? Who is he that he would dare violate the Sabbath by giving somebody back his sight? <laughs> the Lord had the same problem with the Pharisees earlier. He said, so if your donkey falls into the pit on the Sabbath, are you going to say, stay there till sunset? He'll be dead by then. Brethren, some of us, I want to say this the right way, because I know that God wants us to honor the Sabbath. But when somebody has a need, don't, do not be pharisaical and say to them, now I know you need food, but it's five more hours, I'll get you something to eat. Five more hours? That's why Jesus said, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. If there's, any, if there's any day in the week that a burden should be lifted, it's the Sabbath. Come on, somebody. Now, I'm not talking about painting somebody's house. But I'm talking about the needs of humanity, the suffering humanity around us. Never allow the Sabbath to be a diversion from relieving the suffering of the poor. The Pharisees had a problem. Jesus never violated it, but they thought he had done so. And he continued to, he continued. And I don't even want to put all this in because the, the contention between the Pharisees and this blind man was so long, it simply came down to the point where Jesus gave them all the evidence of his power and his divinity, and they just didn't like the fact that he did it without their permission. So let's go ahead and get past all the Pharisaical folk and go right down to the parents. With overwhelming proof, they could not accept the fact that Jesus had changed his life. So they decided, since we can't get him to speak, let's get his parents. Verse 18 of chapter 9. <laughs> Whew. Didn't think there was so much in one story, did you? Look at verse 18. 
of chapter 9. But the Jews did not believe concerning him. They just wouldn't believe it. That he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him who had received his sight. And they asked them, saying, <coughs> Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? Now, I can see Brandon standing right there. He's the son that used to be blind. But he's kind of probably saying, I Mom, I just told him. Mom, I just told him. I spent hours talking to him. Okay, could you speak on my behalf? <laughs> His parents answered and said, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but by what means he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. This is what a parent should never do. He is of age, ask him. He'll speak for himself. <laughs> Parents, when the Lord changes your child's life, please, all they need is your support. Come on, children, say amen. That's all, they, that's all he wanted. Mom and dad, come on, speak up on my behalf. But you know what? His parents were affected by the same disease that Adam was because Adam blamed Eve, Eve blamed the serpent, and the serpent was the only one that did not seek anybody to blame because he knew he was the problem. The parents lost their opportunity to testify. The doors of earth were chosen over the doors of heaven. Ask him. Let him speak for himself. When they could have simply said, I am so thankful for what God has done in my son's life. I remember when I met my dad after my mom had died and I went to New York City. My dad, my dad, thought, my dad thought I was in show business because he, he was in show business. Jazz musician. In 1999, when I was down at the Manhattan Center in New York City, when Pastor Doug Batchel was preaching, we were right there on 34th Street in the Manhattan Center. And um, it's a very famous place where a lot of programs are held, a lot of you know, things are done there that make television. So there we are in the Manhattan Center. The, the hall was so packed that security had to close the door. And my dad, who I could never get to come to anything religious, I said, Dad, would you come tonight? I'm singing tonight. Would you come tonight? I'll see if you, I'll let them know that you're coming and they'll let you in. Well, we got, he got there late and the place was so full for security purposes, they would not let anybody else in. My dad came and he said to the security guard, my son is the one that's going to be singing tonight. And they let him in. When it was all done, I asked the security, did you see a guy? And I described, oh yeah, he was here. He stayed long enough to watch you sing and then he left. I was always trying to find a way to get into my dad's life. And at his mom's funeral, my grandmother died well up into her 90s. They were about you know, sometimes you live so long, all your friends are dead. 
There's about seven people at the funeral. I was doing the funeral. And my dad, still thinking I'm in show business, and I'm, I'm just doing the eulogy sermon, and he stands up in the midst and says, Oh, son, you are really good. You are really good. Can you imagine that in the midst of a funeral? He said, Boy, and he, he speaks as though I'm in show business. I said, Dad, I'm not in show business. I'm a pastor. He could never get it. He could never get it. And I found out later on why my dad and I just never were able to make that connection because my grandmother left so much money. But there was one thing between my dad and me, and that was his desire to spend it all. When he died, there in his apartment in New York City, I found all the bank books and all the checks and all the money that was a part of my inheritance. It was gone. But you know what? My heavenly father was still on the throne. And I, I paid for his funeral, laid him to rest, and until this very day, I still rely on the same God that I relied on before I met my dad. Because my, my heavenly father said, I will supply all of your need according to my riches and glory. So I understand life issues and birth issues and parental issues and my own struggles. I understand that. But I want to say something very carefully here because as we come down to the winding down of this message, I want to go to verse 22 to 24 because no one can tell Jesus, no one can tell what Jesus has done for you better than you if you remain connected. Look at verse 22 to verse 24. Why did his parents not speak in his behalf? Here's the reason why. His parents, the Bible says in John 9, verse 22, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed already that, it, that if anyone confessed that he was Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. They put religious conviction over dedication to Jesus Christ. I got to make a point here. If your church threatens you for keeping the Sabbath, keep the Sabbath and find a new fellowship. We'll be glad to accept you in. Some people have been threatened. I remember giving an evangelistic series. Actually, I was singing in the series and Pastor Doug was preaching in our early days. And we made an altar call and the young man stood up. He was in the Marines there in Vallejo, California. As soon as he stood up, his wife pulled his coattail. She said, if you get baptized, I'm going to leave you. He sat back down. I said, wait, you stood up and you sit back down. What happened? He said, my wife said, if I get baptized, she's going to leave me. I said, no, what she means is if you get baptized into the Seventh-day Adventist church, she's going to leave you. And I was true because a few months later, they got baptized into a different denomination and his wife didn't leave him. But that was a moment of test. Whether you would put your conviction in Christ above your earthly connections. There was one thing, that's right, Bob, that was preventing him. Verse 23 said, therefore his parents said, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So they again called, so they again. Let me ask you a question. Would you be not frustrated by now? I mean, like, this is ridiculous. After a while, Usa's saying, I'm not even going. I don't even want to talk to them. 
I spent hours talking to these religious people that don't believe in Jesus. I'm not going to try to convince them against their will. But they did. So they again called the man who was blind and said to him, Give God the glory. We know that this man is a sinner. Who are they talking about? They believed in God, but they didn't believe in Jesus. They had seen Jesus. They had heard his miracles. But they said, there's no way a man of this young age could be the divine one. So give God the glory. That's why Jesus said, you believe in God, believe also where? In me. There's no salvation apart from Christ. But the problem was the Pharisees were more focused on the process than the results. But the restored man was focused on the results and not so much the process. That's why we come to the apex of the message. Oh, I love it, Brent. Don't worry about how God does it. But when he does it, that's all that matters. Amen, somebody. Let's look at the apex of the story. Verse 25. He said, it's amazing. And he answered and said, whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing. How many things? One thing I know. That though I was blind, what is it? Now I see. Amen, somebody? Amen. Praise the Lord for that. I know who I was before Christ, and I know who I am now after Christ. I know where my life was headed, and I know where it's headed now. I know my past, but I see my future. I don't want to go back. Somebody say that with me. I don't want to go back. I don't want to go back. When the Lord said to Peter, you're going to leave me? He said, to whom shall we go? You are the Christ. You have the words of life. I don't want to go back. Because the faith issues are too powerful. When Jesus changes us, he also changes our responsibility. Let's wind this up. Look at the responsibilities. Acts 1 and verse 8. When the Lord changes you, he, you are responsible for the change. Acts 1.8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. When the Lord changes you, he gives you power, but you can't sit on the power. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the what? Ends of the earth. When the Lord changes your life, he'll take you from where you are to those that you can't get along with, to those that you have a hard time seeing eye to eye with. And then when you get past those hurdles in your life, he'll put the world at your doorstep. To the ends of the world. But our world is a place where spiritual blindness is being imposed. Paul the Apostle said it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3 and 4. But even if our gospel is veiled or hidden, it is hidden to those who are perishing. Why? Whose minds the God of this age has done what? Blinded. Who do not believe lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. The devil doesn't want them to see because if they see, that one thing would be abandoned immediately. Just look at that in the Bible. That's what happened in Scripture. When the woman at the well saw Jesus, what did she abandon? Her pot. Right? When you find Jesus, the things you hold on to or the things that held you lose their connection with your future. You are willing to let it go. You are willing to let it go. But when Jesus transforms your life, not only does he make you a witness, but it transforms you to the last level. And here's the last level of that young man's transformation. Look at it. 
John chapter 9, verse 35 to 38. This formerly blind man now confesses Jesus. They put him out for doing right, but Jesus took him in. Look at verse 35. Jesus heard that they cast him out. He got put out of the synagogue on the Sabbath. And when he had found him, he said to him, this is the, this is the test. Do you believe in the Son of God? That was the issue of the day. Do you believe in the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have both seen him. Now watch this. Could Jesus have said that before he got his eyesight? No. He restored his sight so that he could see Jesus. Jesus said, you have both seen him, and it is he who is talking to you. And the Bible says, then he said together, Lord, I believe. And what happened? And he worshiped him. Until we see Jesus for who he is, we will never consider that he alone is worthy of worship. Not the car he gave you, not the house, not the bank account, not the things, but he alone is worthy of worship. So let me end with these two points. Here's the remedy. Here's the remedy for blindness. Let's look at the remedy. Two passages in the Bible. The remedy for blindness. The remedy for blindness. Philippians 3 and verse 13, which is in fact an experience of this young man who used to be. The Bible says in Philippians 3.13, Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended. Are you ready now? Say it with me. But what? But what? Let's say it one more time with some um. But what? One thing I do. Wow. How many things? One. One thing I do. And what is that? Forgetting. Say that word with me. Forgetting. Are you able to do that? Forgetting those things which are where? Behind. And reaching forward to those things which are where? Ahead. Paul said this, and he next said, Now I'm able, by forgetting what was in the past, now I'm able to press toward the mark for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. But what was holding him to the past? One thing. And when Paul let it go, he was able to press toward the mark. Brethren, are you there today? The remedy for blindness, forgetting those things behind you. But the antidote, this is what happens. The antidote, last text, Psalm 27, verse 4. The antidote, when the Lord changes you, your desires change. Everything about you change. David the psalmist said it this way. Can we read it together? Here it is, Psalm 27, verse 4. Together, one thing I have desired of the Lord. What is it? Is it money? Is it fame? Is it popularity? Is it notoriety? No, here's what it is. One thing I have desired of the Lord, and what is that? That I will seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord, how long? All the days of my life to do what? To behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. How many of you want to be in the house of the Lord forever? One thing, one thing. What is the one thing that is still playing havoc in your life? What is the one thing that says to you day after day, I'm not going to let you go? Because if I let you go, you're going to become who God wants you to be. What is that one thing 
that you're battling with? What is that one memory? What is that one family member? What is that one experience you've had? What is that one disappointment that you have idolized and made a statue after? What is that one thing today that you are saying, I cannot let this go? And Jesus is saying, if you let it go, I'll not just open your eyes. I'll transform your life. Unless your transformation is more important than your incarceration, you'll never get beyond that one thing. I understood I was incarcerated, not in a physical jail, but in a spiritual one. But I look back on that incarceration with memories to recognize that when I got rid of that one thing, I was able to behold the beauty of the Lord and now I, I can inquire in his temple and I can pray like the Apostle John said there was one thing keeping me from being free from my past one thing preventing me from seeing Jesus for who he is or knowing the power of Christ and when I gave up that one thing when I gave up that one thing I am who I am today because of what Jesus was able to do. Oh, he spat in my eyes. I felt it. He told me to walk while I was blind. I did. But I came back seeing. Because as the young man said, I once was blind, but now I see. So I ask you the question today. Do you want to see what God has in store for your life? Are you completely sold out, totally exuberant and happy where you are? Or do you believe somewhere in the depth of your soul that there's got to be more? There's got to be more to this thing called Christianity than just studying my Sabbath school lesson, going to church, listening to Christian television and radio, and still feeling that nothing is changing. So the question is, Mom, the Pharisees, the neighbors, the disciples, or the young man who was blind. They were. He used to be, but now he can see. How many of you want to join that young man today? Could you stand with me? You see, we've got to pray that prayer. John said in Revelation 3, anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. There's one thing keeping us. And just in case you think this was just a great exercise and encouraging you. Let me tell you today, the difference between who you are and who you can be is one thing. Somebody asked today, you're standing, but if there's somebody today that wants special prayer, God knows what that, that one thing is. And you want to raise your hand and say, I want to put that one thing before the Lord today. I don't want to keep dragging it around and my pulling it out every now and then, remembering it and looking back and putting it back in there like somehow that one thing is more important than what God has in store for me. Yes. One thing. Father in heaven, I'm excited because I know what this story is all about. I once was blind, 
but now I see. And now I can behold the beauty of the Lord. I can feel the warmth of your acceptance, the beauty of your forgiveness, the power of your transformation. And Father, when I look out of my front door spiritually, I can see a carpet that has no end. And you've told me this is the way. Walk in it. But Father, today there's so many that claim your name, yet somehow there's that one thing that lives in their hearts and their minds and their thoughts and their lives, that, that one chain that drags around their ankles that they can hear wherever they walk, that one memory, that one desire, that one fascination, that one addiction, that one passion that they just refuse to let go. But today, Lord, I pray that you won't let them rest until you spit in their eyes, send them on their journey, and they come back transformed. May that be our desire today, Lord. One thing I desire of the Lord. May that be our desire. For you won't do it unless we want it. You won't force us unless we invite you. May that be our desire. And finally, Father, when we experience this transformation, may we recognize that all along you've had witnessing opportunities. You want us to proclaim your goodness, your mercy, your transformation, and your grace. And may we do that to your glory and your honor alone. In Jesus' name I pray. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.